My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to Episode 5 of Season 5 of the 21st Century Creative. One of the things I've been wanting to do for a while now is to offer a positive perspective on the business of music. Because we're all too familiar with the bad news about the music industry in recent years. The collapse of revenues with the advent of streaming, whether legal or illegal, and the difficulty musicians have in earning even a half-decent living from their music. So it's easy to be despondent about the state of the industry, and I don't want to minimise any of the problems. But here at the 21st Century Creative, we are all about doing things differently. And so today, I'm delighted to welcome to the show a musician who zags when others zig, in terms of both his music and his career as a musician. His name is Steve Lawson, and he has been described by Bass Guitar Magazine as Britain's most innovative bassist, no contest. You see, instead of playing in a band as part of the rhythm section, the way bass players are supposed to, Steve is a solo artist who creates what he describes as melodic, ambient, wonky electronica. And instead of chasing a record deal, stadium gigs, or millions of streams on Spotify, Steve deliberately keeps his audience small and intimate. He releases several albums a year via an innovative subscription model, which frees him up to make music on his own terms, in a sustainable and rewarding relationship with his fans. Not only am I a fan of Steve's music, he was also one of the inspirations behind my decision to start a Patreon membership here at the 21st Century Creative, as I think he's a shining example of how to do this right and how to create something that's a win-win for everyone involved. You can listen to some of Steve's music and learn all about how to get access to what he calls his ever-expanding digital box set at stevelawson.net. Now, before we dive into the rest of the show, I want to say a few words about one of the big stories of 2020, and that's the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, I'm not an American citizen, so I'm not going to comment directly on the situation in the United States. But here in the UK, we have plenty of our own problems with racism and inequality, both historically and currently. I live in Bristol, which was one of the ports most involved in the slave trade. And the city recently hit the headlines when the statue of slave trader Edward Colston was pulled down by protesters and unceremoniously thrown in the harbour. So, Black Lives Matter is very much a live issue for us. Seeing the protests and the reactions unfold over the last few months, I keep thinking about the interview I recorded with Monique DeBose for season four, where she spoke really powerfully about her experience of growing up mixed race in the US. And it struck me again how brave she is 
to be doing a one-woman show where she talks about her own story and facilitates a discussion about the issues with multiracial audiences. Right now, I think we could really do with a different kind of conversation about the differences between us. And it's a tragedy that the quality of public debate and discourse has really declined in recent years, which makes this harder than ever. First and foremost, black lives matter on a human level, because it's only right that everyone should be safe and respected and included and empowered, whatever their race or their gender or sexuality or nationality. And on a podcast for creatives, I think it's important to underline how important and necessary diversity is for creativity, for the health of the arts and the creative industries, and for the richness of the culture that we all draw on for inspiration and contribute to in our work. One of the things I remember from my master's studies was looking into the research on creativity and seeing how different types of diversity, in terms of race, gender, sexuality, personality types, and so on, are strongly correlated with creativity. And I think we all relate to this in our experience as creatives. The most surprising and creative discoveries often happen at the intersection of different worlds, whether those worlds are cultural, professional, different art forms, or different types of life experience. So, when some people are excluded from full participation, we all lose, because our culture and our society become poorer as a result. One of the heartening things I saw when I looked at footage of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations here in the UK and elsewhere was the number of white faces in the crowd. Because If racial inequality is seen as a problem just for black people, then it will never be solved. But the fact that so many white people are taking part in the movement suggests that we're starting to realise that racism is a problem for all of us. And I do have faith, and I think there's a lot of evidence for this, that when human beings really recognise something is a problem, then they become very creative and resourceful and effective at solving that problem. Like many of us, you may have a love-hate relationship with your phone. On the one hand, it gives you a world of information, entertainment, and diverting pastimes at your fingertips. But it can also be addictive and feel like a waste of time. When you find yourself cycling through your news and your social media feeds, you can end up feeling anxious, unfulfilled and irritated with yourself. The phone fills the gaps in the day, but it can leave you feeling empty. It offers instant gratification, but it creates dissatisfaction. But what else can you do? If you only have a few minutes to kill between meetings or tasks, you don't have time to read a book or watch a movie or exercise or have a proper conversation. Checking your phone is quick and easy. Well, here's a novel suggestion for you. Pick up a poem instead of your phone. Like your phone, 
A poem is something you can pick up and read in a minute or two. But unlike your phone, it won't leave you unsatisfied. It can take you somewhere mind-blowing in a few short lines. It can rearrange your thoughts. It can make you laugh or cry or catch your breath. It can give you a fresh perspective on your life or an insight into someone else's experience. It can transport you on a flight of fancy. And a good poem will stay with you. A line or a verse can lodge in your mind like the chorus of a song. And like a song, you can experience it over and over and find something new in it each time. A poem can fit in your day the way your phone fits in your pocket. It can fill a gap in your day and leave you feeling you got something worthwhile from it. Because you don't need to sit down for hours to read a book of poems. You can read it bit by bit, nibbling at it like a good cheese or sipping it like a fine whiskey. Over the course of a week, you could read a whole slim volume by a contemporary poet. Over a month, you could read an anthology. Bit by bit, poem by poem, your world can grow bigger and richer. If you like the idea of picking up a poem instead of your phone, here are some practical tips to get you started. Firstly, I recommend you don't read poems on your phone or a tablet. Poems get squashed on a screen and you don't get the full experience. Also, there are too many other distractions on your phone and you already associate it with a certain state of mind, scattered, distracted, impatient, that gets in the way of appreciating poetry. So get an actual book and keep it within reach. On your desk, by your bed, by your favourite chair in the living room, or in your handbag or your briefcase. Better still, get several books and keep them in all these places so you always have a poem within reach. If you don't know where to start, get an anthology which will give you lots of poems by different poets. And once you find a poet you like and you want to read more of, then look for a selected poems edition of their work because that will give you their best work in a single volume. A couple of good anthologies to start with are The Zoo of the New, edited by Nick Laird, L-A-I-R-D, and Don Patterson, that's Patterson with one T. And another really good anthology to start with is Staying Alive, edited by Michael Astley, A-S-T-L-E-Y. And once you've got your poetry book, or books, train yourself to pick up a poem instead of your phone. Start by trying to notice the urge to pick up the phone before you actually do it. It's amazing how often I find the phone is in my hand before I've even thought about picking it up. If you find yourself doing this, put the phone down immediately and pick up a poem instead. And after a few tries, you should start to notice the urge before you pick up the phone. And then you can pick up your poetry book instead. Try this as an experiment for a week and see what difference it makes to your life. And 
To get us all started, coming up next, instead of the usual ad break before the interview, is a recording of one of my favourite poems by Thomas Hardy, The Darkling Thrush. If you like the sound of the poem, you can hear a longer recording where I also talk about the poem's theme of hope versus despair in relation to the coronavirus pandemic at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash Thomas Hardy. The Darkling Thrush by Thomas Hardy I leant upon a coppice gate when frost was spectre grey, and winter's dregs made desolate the weakening eye of day. The tangled bindstems scored the sky like strings from broken lyres, and all mankind that haunted nigh had sought their household fires. The land's sharp features seemed to be the century's corpse outlent, his crypt the cloudy canopy, the wind his death lament, the ancient pulse of germ and birth was shrunken, hard and dry, and every spirit upon earth seemed fervorless as I. At once a voice outburst among the bleak twigs overhead in a full-hearted evensong of joy illimited. An aged thrush, frail, gaunt, and small, in blast-beruffled plume, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom. So little cause for carolings of such ecstatic sound was written on terrestrial things afar or nigh around, that I could think there trembled through his happy good-night air some blessed hope whereof he knew and I was unaware. If you talk to most musicians about the state of the music industry, you will hear a tale of woe. No one buys music anymore. Piracy and streaming are killing music. It's impossible to get a record deal anymore. And even if you did, it wouldn't be worth it. And so on. But talk to Steve Lawson and you'll hear a very different story. Steve experienced early career success in what now feels like the good old days of the music business, getting regular gigs as a session musician and touring with the likes of Howard Jones and as the opening act for Level 42. Steve has played headline sets at festivals across Europe and recently he's also collaborated in the studio with artists including Reeves Gabrels and Jason Cooper of The Cure and Mark Kelly of Marillion. So he knows what it's like to play for big crowds and with big stars. But Steve decided to take a very different path. As an experimental solo bass player, he occupies what by any stretch of the imagination is a pretty specialist niche in the music scene. Described by Bass Guitar magazine as Britain's most innovative bassist, no contest. He creates 
otherworldly cinematic soundscapes, improvised live, in his own words, with nothing but a six-string bass guitar, an MPC-style MIDI controller, and a bewildering array of pedals. His music has also been regularly played on BBC Radio 3, Six Music, and numerous stations across Europe and the US. And he's been written about in The Times, The Guardian, and The Independent newspapers. Steve takes an equally unconventional approach to the business side of his music. Many musicians bet their career on chasing the numbers. Previously, with the goal of having a hit record and filling stadiums, more recently, getting millions of streams on Spotify and YouTube. But Steve has opted to build a strong relationship with a small but very dedicated following who really appreciate his music. So, you won't find his music on Spotify or Tidal. Instead, he makes most of it available via an annual subscription in Bandcamp. For a one-off annual fee, you get all the music Steve releases in a year, which is typically several albums worth, plus his entire back catalogue. He calls this Steve's ever-expanding digital box set. And for his listeners, it's an incredible bargain when you explore the volume and quality of its contents. It also gives them the opportunity to connect with Steve, giving them insights into his creative process. In return, as he says in today's interview, his subscribers give him a valuable source of direct and honest feedback about his work. It's working out pretty well financially too. He has enough subscribers to pay his rent which frees him up to spend his time making the music he wants to make and to enjoy teaching the bass to his students. So Steve has that very rare thing in the current music scene, a business model that makes his music sustainable and where he's not beholden to labels or management of any kind. I first met Steve about 13 years ago at Social Media Club in London. A weekly gathering started by Lloyd Davis in the early days of social media, when we were all excited by the potential of the new technologies to facilitate new kinds of social structures. Steve and I have stayed in touch ever since, mostly on Twitter, and as a subscriber to his box set, I can confirm that it's a phenomenal offer, and it's a lovely surprise when an email arrives in my inbox every few weeks with another album from Steve. Here at the 21st Century Creative, of course, we're all about taking an unconventional path. So I wanted to showcase a positive story about the music industry. And Steve was the obvious choice. In this conversation, Steve tells the story of how he found his calling as a solo bass player, literally by accident, and how he tried various paths in the music industry before developing his own style and his own business model. He talks about what makes his membership program work when so many artists have tried this without success. And he has some strong opinions about the state of the music business, how it keeps musicians stuck, and what they can do to achieve sustainable success on their own terms. I should emphasise that we recorded this interview before COVID landed, so we don't talk about the new challenges for musicians in a world where live music at public gatherings is currently banned. But I think it's entirely possible that subscription models like Steve's will become more relevant in a world of social distancing. So 
if you're considering this, it's really worth listening to what he has to say on the subject. And there's plenty here in this conversation for those of us who are not musicians, such as elements of Steve's creative practice and business model. But the most important thing I think we can learn from Steve is his attitude. Contrarian, creative, and irrepressibly determined to succeed on his own terms. So, this is a great interview to listen to for all of us who want to make our creative practice and our creative career sustainable for the long term. Steve, when did you start playing music? Oh, uh, when did I start play- uh, The question is normally, when did you start playing bass? And actually, when did you start playing music is much more interesting. Uh, because I, I think I probably first played recorder when I was about five. And I went through a whole bunch of instruments. I remember my mum trying to sh- teach me the guitar. And she showed me a G chord, a G major chord and an E major chord. And, and I couldn't hear the difference. Like I had no ear for it at all. And which, you know, they're not even in the same key. So they're, they're actually quite jarring. And I just, I just wasn't able to discern, you know, the, the, the difference between them. So there was this assumption that I had zero musical talent. And uh, I then tried violin and trumpet and was, was suitably terrible at both of them. And eventually landed on electric bass when I was 13. And my, I got one for my 14th birthday. Because the kid next door, we just moved from Wimbledon to Berwick-on-Tweed and the kid next door was a drummer. So I bought a bass off a local school teacher for 25 quid. And I it definitely, there was that feeling of coming home, of going, oh, this is what I should be doing. And I was, I mean, I was supremely terrible at it. Yeah. But um, yeah, they just, it was, it just, it suddenly felt like, I think my problem, and this is a big thing that goes, runs across music education entirely, is that kids are being taught music they don't care about. And all of a sudden I landed in a place where I could play music that I was actually listening to. And it wasn't just exercises out of a tune a day book. Um, it was, I was going, okay, well, I, there's that song by The Who or that song by Cream. Or, I, I, despite the fact that it was mid eighties, we were all obsessed with the late sixties for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I, could, I could learn those tunes and play them. And then, and, you know, and, and, and as I got into different kinds of music, I could actually sit down with my bass and work those and have a go at working those out. And, uh, and that, I think that it was that connection between what I was listening to and what I wanted to play that suddenly that solidified that as being the thing, the path that I wanted to be on. So, okay. It was, you know, the kid next door was a drummer. So that's how you picked up the bass, but this, I'm intrigued about this feeling of, oh yeah, this is it. This is what I'm meant to do. What is it that you love about the bass? Um, I think it's, it's a really interesting one. I think, I think that the bass tends to attract a certain kind of personality and it's weird because I now play solo so much of the time that, which is quite outside of that, but we tend to be people who are uh, the, 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 in its normal form, bass doesn't often sit on its own. You know, it, this is so odd, me, me yeah. being the one talking about this because so much I've spent 20 years kind of way outside of this. But the thing that drew me to it was actually that was that team thing of playing with other people, of not being the soloist, of not, not expecting a bunch of other people to support me while I go off and do showy stuff, but actually being part of that whole. Yeah. And I really liked that. I liked the sense that, that um, you were the bit that people danced to. I once did a gig in a very odd gig in a jazz bar in Soho, filling in for the keyboard player in a, in a funk band. And it was a student of mine that was on bass and they were looking for a keyboard player and they couldn't find somebody to cover. And he just went, 
just on a whim said, why don't I get Steve to come in and play the keyboard parts on bass? And I, which was a fantastic <laughs> exercise. It was totally weird. I mean, I'm glad that he was a lunatic and did that. Um, but they asked me to go in and do that. Uh, but the odd thing was I suddenly realized that from the, from the bass, when I'm playing bass lines, I'm in very much in control of what's going on in the band. I can slow the drummer down. I can speed him up. I can, I can support the direction that the singer is going in. I can, you know, there's an awful lot of control that you have. You're, you're basically playing in goal as the bass player hmm. and, and suddenly playing, being a keyboard player and realizing I had no control at all that I was sitting on top of what the rhythm section were doing. And, and I think, I mean, I think there were situations where the, there either the rhythm guitar or the keyboards sit as part of that rhythm chunk. If you listen to Bob Marley, the, the, the rhythm guitar is absolutely part of the rhythm section. Yeah. It's not just bass and drums. But in that situation, I realized that I would hit a chord and I couldn't drag things back. I couldn't push things forward. That the, 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 the rhythm section had its own momentum and that the rest of us were beholden to that. And I realized that that was one of the things I loved about being a bass player was being in that, in that steering role and that taking responsibility for that, even though the audience most of the time weren't aware of it. They were aware of it when we screwed up. Right. But until then, it was just that was just the engine room. That was the thing that kept it going forward. There are all these amazing metaphors that come out when people start talking about rhythm sections and bass playing, and, and they're, they're often quite industrial. They're, you know, when there's quite an industrious process, it's not, it's not about being showy. I mean, there's also, I mean, the flip side of this, the completely opposite end of this as a 14-year-old was that my favorite member of so many of my favorite bands was the bass player. So Nick Beggs in Kajagoogoo and Kurt Smith in Tears for Fears and John Taylor mm -hmm. in Duran Duran. They had the best hair. And so I, <laughs> I was like, great, I want to play what they play. So all of that, all of that, that kind of engine room stuff kind of sort of came down the line as I was playing. I was like, I love doing this. I like this aspect of it. But then uh, it wasn't that long after I started that I that, that that duality of playing bass in a in a novel and experimental way alongside this kind of functional role became two sides of a thing that I, that, that I, I didn't I, it wasn't that I only wanted to play weird stuff on my own but I loved the compliment that that gave to the functional side of it and that's still there now I mean I still get a real kick out of playing other people's music and not worrying about the aesthetics of it in the sense that I, that I like or dislike the music, but kind of focusing in on the craft of it and that art yeah. craft split that developing your craft. So you can serve the music in a way that is, that is where you're beholden to someone else's production or conception of what the, the song should be versus the, the unfettered exploration of art for its own sake. Uh, although maybe we can unpack the fact that that's nonsense as well. Um, but, 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 those, <laughs> but those, that, 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 that perceived duality was one that, that, yeah. you know, I'm, I, it, it came about when I, when I broke my arm and got kicked out of my first band at the age of about 15. Um, I couldn't play normal bass for ages. And so while I had this big plaster cast on my arm, I just borrowed a distortion pedal and started making a really horrible racket on my own. And that was the seeds of what I'm still doing now in a lot of ways that I, I started to see the bass as not just about being a, specifically about that role, but as being a tool for, it was just a, a lump of wood with a magnet on it and some strings and, and I could use it however I wanted to. And that, that, yeah, that became a really a kind of rich seam to mine. And it's, you know, at 47, 46, nearly 47, I'm still, I'm still digging in that same space. Thank you. 
So tell us about your approach then, because you, you know, famously, you're an experimental bass player. What, what does that mean? Well, I think I mean when I f- so I, I, I started playing bass. I got my, my that first bass in what would have been 1986, and at the time there were a couple of people who had experimented with bass as a solo instrument or as a lead instrument. I mean, as a, as a lead instrument, the the pioneer was Jet Harris, the former bass player with the Shadows. Who had a n- mm-hmm. number one hit in about 1961, 62 with with a theme from a film called The Man with the Golden Arm, and it, the whole melody is played on a bass, and, and you know nobody knew it at the time. Nobody knew that it was a bass, and and it was. But you listen to it now, and it's this extraordinary sound. That particular piece of music was is kind of groundbreaking without anybody referencing it these days. So there's there are, um, yeah, and and then through into the late sixties, early seventies, there was a, a guy called Colin Hodgkinson who played in a band called Backdoor, and he he did blues tunes just with a bass. And then into the seventies, there was this explosion of jazz fusion, and people like Jaco Pastorius with Weather Report and Stanley Clark, who became with, certainly within jazz household names for playing bass as, as a melody instrument, but also as a solo instrument. But when I, it was still incredibly uh, esoteric when I started doing it, and it was right up until I I started gigging solo i remember when i was so my first couple of performances solo performances were either demos at music trade shows in the late 90s or and i did one performance for a for a contemporary theater group in a site-specific piece in a car park in east london (laughs) just making random noise um but so my first proper solo gig where people were buying tickets with my name on it uh, was was December the fifteenth, ninety nine. So we're coming up to the twentieth twentieth anniversary of that. And even at that point, playing bass on your own was like telling someone you made your own shoes. They were like, "Wait, wait you do what?" <laughs> yeah, I just fashioned them out of bits of litter, and you know, I put bags over my feet with elastic bands on them. You know, it was it was. Why would you? There were shops that sell shoes. Why are you, why are you messing about like that? Um, and it was playing bass on your own was like what because you have appalling hygiene and nobody else was there near you like what's going on no friends yeah absolutely there was a sense that and and, and first for me it was like this is my instrument and i want to squeeze everything i can out of it you know it was like it's like the dead poet society version of bass playing mm-hmm. suck out the marrow of the bass and i uh, and i i remember it was a pivotal moment for me was was going to i used to go to master classes at the bass center which was a shop in wapping that i was on wapping high street back when wapping was was derelict. There was like this one building that they'd got for dirt cheap at a certain point. Someone incredibly prescient had gone, signed a 20-year lease on this building. And uh, and, and I used to go in there. I mean, even as a kid, my dad would drop me there to go and hang out there while he would go off and he was a courier. So he would go and deliver things around East London and I would spend two or three hours as a 14-year-old sat in the bass centre just looking at bases. It was extraordinary. But um, I used to go to master classes in there and there was one by this a French Canadian bass player called Alain Caron. And uh, he played just like 16 bars of a chord melody. That's, that's a kind of jazz term for playing the chords and the tune at the same time. A chord melody arrangement of my favorite things, the John Coltrane version. And he just did it on, on, on a six string fretless bass. And in that moment, I went, that's the instrument I need to play. It was just like this, it was like, you know, angels singing and, and, uh, Monty Python cartoons playing trumpets. Um, and uh, I I just saw it and, 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 you know, spent the next two years saving up to buy that instrument. And I got and I got it in, in September 99, I think, about six weeks before I went out on tour with Howard Jones. Um, and I got that six-string bass. And, 
and and that but it was very much a sense that this was a blank canvas because so few people were doing it and i was just curious it wasn't about inspiration and i, and I keep pushing this with students that they're all waiting for inspiration to strike and it's like you don't need inspiration you just need curiosity that the pursuit of advancement comes through you wondering ask, just asking questions just going i wonder what would happen if i did that yeah and if you're waiting for something to come along and inspire you to to greatness, you're going to miss those incremental steps through mediocrity that are required to get to where something is meaningful. And that that process was driven for me by curiosity and me going, I wonder if I can get to that point. And I, I still can't play 16 bars of my favorite things as a chord melody thing. I didn't, well, I never bothered going back and learning that. It was the potential within that, that, that tiny phrase that made me go, that's, that's the, the, the space I want to explore. Not, I don't want to learn that piece of music. And I, so, I, and, and then there were a couple of sort of quite practical things that that defined what happened at the start of my career that I'm I'm still kind of lumbered with now. And one of which was that I got that first that first gig on December fifteenth, ninety nine, because a promoter who's still working in London now, a guy called Sebastian Merrick, an amazing guy who promotes a lot of music from uh, Turkey and the Middle East, and uh, he saw me play a solo piece with a band that I was in. I was in this quite esoteric band called Ragatal. And he saw me do a solo piece and he said, oh, have you, got a solo, have you got a whole set of tunes like that? And I just lied and said, yeah, sure, loads. <laughs> <laughs> and one tune. Um, and, uh, and, and so he booked me for this gig. And I had, and, but in between him booking me and me doing the gig, I had this tour with Howard Jones, who had been my boyhood hero. Mm-hmm. That, you know, one of the new songs by Howard is probably the first pop song I ever learned all the words to. I was, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd gone to my mum at the age of, 12 and can I have my hair like yeah. that and you know showing him a picture of him with his wicked mullet at uh-huh. that time you know? <laughs> I was like I want a mullet like that and uh obviously didn't get it um but but so I, I had this tour with him and so I had to learn those songs and rehearse those and then go out on tour so I didn't have time to actually write a set of material for this first gig so what I came up with was a series of start points for improvisation they were four eight sixteen bar loops because i was already using well, well i guess we'll, we'll unpack what that what that's about in a moment but i was already using looping technology to play things in live and then have them repeat like a like a, a long fixed delay and so i had these these initial loops but i hadn't written tunes over them i didn't have entire compositions and none of them had a b section you know there wasn't anything with a verse or a chorus they were all sort of these evolving uh repetitive uh, explorations of particular tonalities or color or whatever, and 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 uh, it was only through the process of recording them that they they became fixed in any way at all. And so mm-hmm. once I so I, I recorded that show and put some of that on my website as the format of the time was real audio. I don't know if you remember that, which is a very Bailey, early hyper compressed yeah. web format of the late nineties. Yeah, um, terrible sounding. You know, like 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 AM radio level horribleness. And I put a bunch of the recordings up on on my website with that, and uh, and people went, "This is great. Where can we? You know, when's the album coming out?" And I was like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> like this. So the, it wasn't that I had a strategic plan to become a solo bass player. I was curious. I was experimenting with it. I was using it as a demo thing for the the. I, I'd, I'd met the editor of base of bassist magazine at the time in a shop and said, "I can do that sort of Yossa Hughes style. You know, get a job. I can yeah. do that." And uh, and he did, and he. I started writing for them. I just they didn't have anybody who was a specialist in pedals and technology, and so I reinvented myself as that in the mid nineties. 
So I was working for them and that meant I then got to do demos of that stuff at trade shows and I could bill them a couple hundred quid for doing it. Um, and uh, and so I, I, th- that was the start point of me kind of actually using that those experimentations at home, that pursuing that curiosity to the point where it was actually had a utility. Yeah. And I think that functionalism sort of came into, has sort of, it's sort of stuck with me. And it's been both an inspiration and a millstone at times, kind of wondering what it's for. It's such an interesting question for an artist to ask because, you know, within post post enlightenment art, we have this sort of, or post Renaissance even, I guess we have this idea that art shouldn't be functional. That that function is 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 for for plebs and proles and you know and actually that that the bourgeoisie are meant to have have art that just exists for its own beauty and its own aesthetic magic majesty and I've always kind of deferred to a kind of a much more sort of pop process even while my music is is sort of I don't know where, where it would land as sort of soundtrack sounding music I guess maybe that's maybe that's where it comes from maybe it's the idea that soundtracks have a utility. That they they tell a story. So you went on this amazing journey of discovery, Steve. You followed your curiosity. You started exploring and experimenting. You put your work out there and found that people, amazingly, people were interested in this this kind of weird and wonderful concoction you were coming up with. And then you know you stepped into this space where you were on tour with Howard Jones. I mean, what was that like? Well, that, yeah, so so it was kind of it, there was this bizarre crossover that happened. So before I started playing solo, my career trajectory was very much that I th- assumed that I would be a session player. You know, the, the 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 traditional role of the session musician, where I would be hired to play for people. And and, and there were a couple of moments when it felt like that mm, that model fit me really well. So I, there was I played with a Canadian gospel artist for a while and, and I did a couple of records with him. And there was a moment when one of those tracks was being played on a radio station, some kind of regional station in the country. And, and, and it was being played and, and a singer songwriter from Scotland heard it, uh, rang up the label to find out what the track was called, rang the studio to find out who the bass player was on it, got my number and rang me up and said, I want you to come and play on this album. And it was, you know, it's kind of, it's the sort of stuff that you imagine would happen <laughs> to people who are massively successful. And I thought, oh God, if that's going to be happening every time I do, you know, do a piece of work, I, this is going to be brilliant. My career is going to, I'm going to be the next, I don't know, Paul McCartney or Pino Palladino or something. And uh, and it happened once in my entire life. So that was, that was, right. uh, but it was, a, it was a really lovely moment. So that, that, you know, so I was playing on records and I, there were a couple of studios that that i got to do a fair bit of i mean not not massively high profile stuff but you know decent reasonably well-paid professional sessions playing on other people's music and i was touring with a a number of different artists mostly on the gospel scene so i kind of avoided a lot of the i avoided a lot of the the sort of weirder excesses of of the rock and pop scene because i just happened to be the the world i i ended up in Mm. um but also being in London, I was, I was getting hired for other things. I had a student, um, uh, I, cause I was teaching all the way through this, that, that as is so often the case with creative practitioners that, um, we discover that either that's our way of paying the bills or in my case, that was my way of understanding what I was doing was to show other people it. And I've always found that, that actually the, the, the best way for me to solidify a set of ideas or a concept or an approach is to then sit somebody else down and go, okay, this is how I've been doing it. Does this make yeah. sense to you? And, yeah. and so yeah, that, I, that, I find that a lot. 
Yeah, that that reflective process. I think I think I think I mean, I'm, I'm sure doing the podcast gives you a, a, a fair amount of that as well. You know, that there is that, there is that that space to reflect on what you're doing. It does. Yeah, it's a nice space to reflect and okay, how do how do we do this and what have we got mm. in common and what can we learn from each other? So yeah, so okay, so you were teaching and playing. So I was teaching as well, and I had a student who was making hip hop records and and hired me to come and play on a couple of things that ended up in you know in circulation on XFM and. And I ended up with the Howard Jones gig because who's had like oh Nick Beggs who's the one of my you know the reasons why I played bass in the first place Nick was the bass player in Kajagoogoo and uh, we'd become friends over the years I'd written to him when I was at college and said you're great I love you and we met up at a gig for him to show mm-hmm. me uh, he played a, a bizarre instrument called the Chapman stick which I wanted to check out so he showed me that but we stayed in touch and I ended up giving him a lesson. Uh, ahead of him touring with John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin, which was incredibly complex music. And so my theory background was useful to him. So I showed him that. And at the end of it, he just said, well, it clashes with the Howard Jones tour. Do you want to do the tour with Howard around Europe? So so I was like, (laughs) yeah. I was like, oh yeah, I'll just check my diary. What have I got going on? A couple of pub gigs. No, sorry, I'm busy. So yeah, sorry, I've got a student booked in that Monday. I have to cancel the whole thing. Uh, You know, I was like, no. So so so, and it was funny because because he then said, okay, you can do it. And then a few weeks before we rehearsals were meant to start, Howard realised he'd never actually heard me play. And so he said, do you want to just come over for the afternoon and we'll meet and, and chat <laughs> just and to play? Make sure. <laughs> just in case you're awful and Nick's just, yeah. Nick's judgment is appalling. And we played one song and he just had this look of relief and he went, oh, okay, we're going to be fine. Which was great, you know, for, I was 25, 20, I was 26. Yeah. And an idiot, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I was kind of, you know, sort of assembling this, this concoction of behaviours that somehow looked vaguely like a career from the outside. And uh, and and doing bits and pieces, and so, you know, and suddenly I was playing with my boyhood hero, and it wasn't like we were doing stadiums, but we were we were playing decent sized club venues across Europe, and and playing amazing music. I mean, Howard is still, even now, twenty years on, is still an extraordinary performer and a great songwriter. And so I was playing this brilliant music with an amazing band, and uh, yeah, and and it still felt like that would be my main thing. And so what happened? And I guess this is this is an interesting one to unpack because what happened was when I when I did the solo gig, which came about because. I lied to a promoter and said I could play it. Um, yeah. that, that because of that happening, I did such a good job of telling people about it. And I'll explain why in a moment. That uh, that the phone stopped ringing completely, like like literally overnight. What I felt was the pinnacle of my session career was actually the end of it. In in any in any kind of sense of it of it being the main thing that 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 I did and that was about two things one of which is this sort of general conservatism in terms of the way that people view bass players specifically but musicians more broadly in the sense that they don't assume that we can do lots of things so people immediately assume that because i was playing solo i'd lost the ability to play normal bass uh, right and it's like oh well i, I can't hire him why because he'll turn up with a with a you know a, with a six string bass and play melodies through my entire gig as though i was incapable of playing a groove anymore mm-hmm. so there was some of that but there was also this sense that i was extremely busy because the, the in that nascent period of the at the birth of the internet or birth of the world wide web i guess not the internet but the when i, I for quite uh, two or three years i was the only bass guitar teacher in europe to have a, a website so i would get wow. phone calls from finland and places where people go oh i see you teach and it was like, yeah, but quite a long way from you. And they go, oh, I'm coming to England. Can I get a lesson? I'm like, yeah, sure. But there are teachers in Finland. And they were like, yeah, but you're online. So <laughs> I was like, okay, oh, wow. fine. Um, but so there was a sort of very odd relationship with the internet at the time. 
And because I was talking about what I was up to, I'd, I'd sort of, again, I was a journalist. So I had a, I had a bit of a head start in terms of, of communicating thoughts in the written word. And, and, and I, you know, I just manifest all of this uh, ridiculous privilege that comes with being a native English speaker online, for example, that, that yeah. you know, that, that, that gives you an advantage that I was British and male and able-bodied and, you know, and, and there were all these things that, that just meant that I, I never thought about the web defensively. I never felt that I was, I needed to protect anything. I just got out there and said, I'm doing this and you should all come to my gig. In this sort of bold and I was kind of relatively erudite, but occasionally culturally slightly clumsy way. Um, and people showed up. And so it wasn't, it wasn't that I was, you know, playing to thousands of people, but I was playing to enough. But it also meant that my peers had seen that and all went, oh, Steve's so busy playing solo because he keeps talking about it. <laughs> Clearly, we, we shouldn't be phoning him up for depths because he's to, to, to you know, replace us on gigs because he's too busy. And so the, the, the two sides, one was the conservative side where people were like, we don't trust him to play anymore. And the other side was, oh, he's so busy, he can't do these normal gigs anymore. He's off all over the world playing solo. Um, and in the middle of that, I was like, oh, okay, so I guess I better make, a, make as good a job of... of playing solo as I can. This is, this is, right. you know, and, and so, so there was, there was, there was this bizarre coming together of, of the esoteric nature of being a solo bass player, you know, and, and people's perception of that as this weird gimmick, even though it never felt like a gimmick to me, thankfully. Um, it just felt like that what I heard, the music I heard in my head involved lots of layers of me. Yeah. And so I got, a, you know, use this loop device and played lots of parts. Um, and so there was that on the one side and on the other side, this practical thing of, of, oh, well, if I'm, if people aren't going to phone me up for gigs, I better get some more gigs of my own. This, this again is kind of interesting because I was a, as a session musician, I was obviously was was actively looking for work. But you are pursuing an intermediary to you being able to reach an audience. You you know you get in touch with an artist or a manager or a label or whatever it is, and they hire you to do a thing. And suddenly, as a solo artist, I didn't know how any of that worked for artists i didn't know what a manager did i didn't know what a booking agent did so and i didn't know what a record, a record company did and so i just took on all of that burden and it wasn't it wasn't a, a you know a, 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 i didn't see myself as some sort of entrepreneurial self-starter it was just if i want these things to happen i will do them myself and i think part of it was through being a journalist that i knew that nobody even those the people who were doing similar things to me that were extremely well known very, very few of them were making any money out of recordings at all. They saw recordings as a thing that a record label did in order for them to get access to better paying gigs. Right. So that they, they the, the the record was a loss leader. And, and that just didn't appeal to me. I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to make, you know, I want to make some money off this. So I researched how much it was to press CDs rather than going to a label and saying, will you put my record out? I was like, oh, well, if I make a thousand CDs, and, I, and they cost me pound eighty each, then that means I break even after 180 or 200 if I'm charging postage. And, and, uh, and then I've, I've, I can make eight grand off these. That, mm -hmm. that sounds like a reasonable amount of money to make off a 1,000 yeah. CDs. 
And so I just kind of went down that path and some of it was naive and some of it was, was back to the curiosity thing that I started to, uh, you know, that wasn't just applied to the playing side of, of my development. It was all of it. Was right. Curious. So that, again, this is, this is really an interesting point that one thing I notice about the people who succeed professionally as well as artistically are the ones who have that curiosity about the professional side of things. And they're willing mm. to go out and try things and ask, well, why, why is it done that way? Can't I do it this way? Yeah, I mean, and I and I encounter I have encountered so many people along the way who would say, "Oh, I couldn't get a deal, and I couldn't do that." And I go, "Did you not think about putting it out yourself?" Yeah. And within music, in particular, and I think I think it's specific to music. Acting may have this, but I guess act, there is a respectability in fringe theatre that that a lot of uh, that isn't necessarily there in in. It's certainly mainstream sounding music. It's there in folk music and punk, but it's not in the, which is this idea that that you can you know muddle through and you don't need some other uh, agency or or agent in between you and your audience to validate your work. So a record label for a lot of people was the point at which they felt like something validated what they were yeah. doing. They weren't listening to an audience feedback. They weren't listening to audience feedback. They were they were looking for uh, somebody to throw money at them. Without thinking about what that meant, without thinking about the fact that they were being ripped off in the in the middle of that, often, without thinking about the fact that the label don't necessarily like what they were doing, they just thought they could sell it. You know that that the labels are, their great their great skill was 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 always to kind of you know, try and spot things that were commercially viable and then spread their bet so that that if one of them came up trumps, they didn't need to use that money to pay off anybody else's debt. They just you know it was it, it was a, it's it's a, a very bizarre um, set of uh economics i guess i guess book publishing is similar um but but it uh, uh, there was a time when making music independently was seen as uh, the last thing that you did because you were a failure and so your point about the the successes being the ones who were willing to engage with those those uh um sort of industrial processes those the the business side of things and and start thinking about that that's absolutely true. I mean, there were a number of us that at the time I wasn't I wasn't unique in the in making my own records. And there were some people who who did it aesthetically in a very kind of guerrilla way. They would, you know, print CDRs and and write, you know, handwrite on them. And it became a sort of a very much a sort of lo-fi, almost like a folk art aesthetic, a sort of Howard Finster kind of approach to music. But for, for that wasn't where I wanted to be. My, you know, my 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 creative model, my aesthetic model for printing out records was was labels like ECM, the German kind of, you know, jazz and experimental label, or Wyndham Hill, which was an American new age and acoustic label. And they had these beautifully taken cover shots and fantastically made packaging. And I wanted that. I wanted that beauty. I wanted mm-hmm. that 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 sense that the frame within which my music sat was one that gave it, uh, uh, added to the meaning of it. And I've always been fascinated by that. So now you've got this extraordinary frame for the way you put your work out there. You call it Steve's ever-expanding digital box set. I mean, what on earth is that, Steve? So, yeah, so uh, the very quick kind of straight-line path between the, making those first CDs and, and, and this was the realisation at a certain point that, that whenever I put out a CD, I needed to recoup the money I'd spent on it. Mm-hmm. And early on, I, uh, when CDs were still a, the, the primary currency within, within the demographic of my music, consumers the people who actually bought what i was doing that i could recoup that before the record came out i could do that in pre-sales 
But it became increasingly apparent that that wasn't possible. And so I switched to digital only. And in 2009, so yeah, almost just over 10 years ago, uh, a platform called Bandcamp came along, which anybody who's interested in, in uh, independent music will have encountered, I guess. But they they focused on the beauty of the presentation, that it's, it's quite uniform, that you, know, you kind of know what a Bandcamp page looks like. Um, but they, they highlight artwork and they allow you to upload above CD resolution. So there's none of that kind of argument that, oh, iTunes is terrible because the MP3s are such low resolution. Yeah. That the files that I upload to Bandcamp are 24-bit, so they're DVD audio quality. So I can, I can again, that aesthetic thing that I was trying to get with the CDs, I now have with a digital mm-hmm. format. But what I then realized was that if I wasn't trying to recoup the cost of a CD, I could release a lot more music. Um, and at that point, the sticking... The, the stumbling block became marketing and promotion. And I realized that I couldn't send uh, a download code to the journalists that I knew at magazines and radio four times a year, that they weren't going to go, oh, and now we have a new track. Steve Austin, <laughs> four times a year. That, 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 that Tom Robinson, who's been incredibly supportive at, at Six Music, um, that if I send him one thing every couple of years, he, he says, oh, and I've got a new track from Steve Lawson. And it's always exciting to hear from him. And that that works on a on a on a on a an every other year cycle. But if I did it every three months, he's going to be going. So Steve, I just played you. I can't, I can't do it again. Yeah. And so I needed another model that wasn't that didn't require me to promote each album and have the the economic success or failure of that one product be predicated on me promoting it as a single entity. And at that point. The subscription model was starting was was becoming more and more prevalent. I mean, obviously, it's been there forever. There's been that one of my heroes in this this format is uh, a Welsh singer songwriter called Martin Joseph, who ran his his fan club as a as a paid subscription model, which got you a couple of free CDs a year, and has been doing that for twenty five years. I mean, you know that 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 his the passport queue is what it's called and you you subscribe to that and it's been a physical subscription model for that long and it sustained a lot of his career um so it's not that that it was invented at this point but it became popular online and patreon was one of the platforms that emerged but bandcamp I, 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 by this point i was kind of a bit of an evangelist for bandcamp and had been seen as sort of poster child for this sort of this model of doing it yourself which again was kind of weird because it wasn't that i felt the only way to do things was to do everything yourself. It wasn't that I was anti-manager or anti-agent or anti-whatever or anti-label even. It's that I'd never found anybody who could do what I needed to do better than I could do it myself. I'm still open to working with all of those people. There's just nobody that's come along and gone, actually, I think I can help you with that. I think maybe it's a little, maybe the, the, the perceived level of success of what I've done has been a little intimidating from the outside. But um, so when Bandcamp started talking about subscriptions, I'd, by that point, I'd got to know the CEO we'd been in touch, we'd been put in touch by a mutual friend and I'd met up with him when I was in California because they were obviously fascinated by how people were using the platform and had seen that I was releasing a lot of music, seen that I'd, uh, by that point, pulled my music off of all the other platforms, certainly all the streaming platforms, and was focused entirely on Bandcamp. And so he wanted to talk to me about what that meant and, and how they could support that. And they started to bring up this idea of, of starting a subscription and I got so excited and there are a bunch of my initial ideas in the subscription and how it works because of mm-hmm. that meeting with with Ethan. Um, and so when it launched, there were three three artists, I think, that got to trial it before the other half a million people that were on Bandcamp. There was me, 
uh, ambient guitar player from Texas called Andy Othling, who plays as lowercase noises. His music's beautiful. And a brilliant band from Oxford called Candy Says. And so we all set up subscriptions and tried it out. And then a year later, they launched it to the public. But immediately I was like, wow, I don't actually have to do promo. I don't have to think about who I need to send this album to. I've just got this audience who care about it. And every time I release a record, the subscription becomes more valuable. Right. So the invitation in is no, so initially it was the, 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 the sweetener when you signed up, you got the music for the, from the coming year, which is it's still for me is the most significant thing about it is that you're part of this forward looking journey. But the sweetener is obviously that you get a bunch of back catalog stuff. And initially it was my 10 solo mm-hmm. records. And now I think, I think it's up to about 49 albums that you get the moment you sign wow. up. So for the 30 quid annual fee, there's like three days of continuous music. Should you want to plow through it in that way? So there's in, in, in album terms, in, in terms of the way, the, the way that we think about the, 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 the monetary value of an album, it's a ridiculous offering. I mean, if you don't like what I do, then it's worthless. Obviously, that's you know, buying buying. This has always been the odd thing with art is that we talk about the value of a painting or an album or or whatever as though there is a unit price that's meaningful. And actually, great art is priceless, and and bad art is worthless. And 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 those two things are, are, are hugely variable. But if you um, do like what you do, it's a phenomenal offer. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it, and, it, and it it gives me a space to talk about the things that I see as valuable within our ongoing relationship with art. It, it's its that sense of direct connection between me and the supporter. There's very much that, that patronage model, the idea that you are providing a significant level of support to what I do, that you get all this additional music and that that is so far outside of the norm that it's very easy to see how you're facilitating that, that for you, you know, as a subscriber, when that new album drops in and you go, wow, there's another new record, really? There was only one uh, like six weeks ago. Where did mm-hmm. this come from? And I go, well, because I can, I'm not spending my time doing promo. I'm not spending my time, you know, on the phone with journalists trying to convince them to write an article about me. When everybody, whenever somebody chooses to write about me or put me on the radio, I'm super grateful, but it kind of happens on its own. I don't have to do much for that. I don't spend a lot of time schmoozing the press. I spend a lot more time making music. This is one of the things that that really interests me is that, you know, a really well-designed business model is one that creates more value for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's totally win-win. So if I'm your fan, I'm getting an incredible offer. I get all access to the whole back catalogue plus the excitement of following the new journey. And for you, it sounds like it brings you a lot of creative freedom. Well, it does. And it also it gets me out of that conversation about how do I get a quarter of a million people a month to listen to me on Spotify in order to become yeah. sustainable, which is basically where the rest of the music industry is at, is there are all these ridiculous... I went to a seminar recently where a guy was talking about the streaming economy and he was saying, oh, you know, it's, it may not sound like a lot, the fact that you make five grand off a million streams, but new markets are opening up and you could be, you know, you could have a hit in India or China. And it's like, yeah, but you're not talking about the marketing cost of getting your music to India because everyone in India has access to 40 million songs. Why are they going to listen to my work unless I'm actively Mm -hmm. promoting it there? And if I am, is that cost going to be greater than, is it going to cost me more than five grand to reach a million people? Of course it is. That's ridiculous. The idea that I could stumble into a market that I know nothing about and suddenly leapfrog everyone because I'm amazing. Like that's nonsense. And so with this, I have this sustainable practice 
which I mean, it's I, I love these the, the way that we can kind of invent ben- benchmarks for things. And the latest one that I hit was that from my it fluctuates and and kind of increases over time and then has sort of dips and, and whatnot. But I'm I'm at around 250 subscribers at the moment, and that pays our rent for the year. So our, our housing is effectively free, right? Because of the music. Now uh, the same the, the same amount of of money made on on that I've made the same amount that I've made off Bandcamp across my ten, 10 years on it would have required me to have between 12 and 15 million streams on on uh, Spotify depending on how you calculate their payment rate and the cost of me getting those would have been astronomical but the, the marketing strategy that would have been required unless unless I got lucky and landed on a on a playlist you know one of the sleep playlists or something or music for writing or something that that has millions of subscribers but I never wanted that gamble. I never wanted to focus on one piece of work and try and promote it in that way. What I needed was a way of exactly what you said, that it needs to be a creative and, a, and an economic win-win. I needed and to find that audience who were interested enough in what I was doing that, that me releasing 10 albums to them a year wasn't going to feel like you know massive overkill. And were willing to fund it. But also just that, that gave me this latitude to keep looking forward the, the the music economy the the vast majority of the music the 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 sense of value within the music economy is about music that already exists that if you're a publisher and you own the rights to 750,000 albums so seven and a half million songs roughly if you're you know Warner Publishing or Sony ATV or someone like that then the music that you're thinking of releasing this year, the, the the several hundred songs that are going to come out over the coming year that you actually are going to put any weight behind are infinitely insignificant compared to the value in that music that people already love mm-hmm. and the ease with which that can be marketed and monetized. So you own Michael Jackson's back catalogue. Why are you even going to pay any attention to new music at all? So you have a couple of people whose job it is to kind of try and get that out there. But actually, where your focus is, is how do we scrape more cash out of people who already love ABBA and Chic and the Eagles and Neil Diamond and God knows who else. And the artists themselves end up focused on that. So you have 17 different remix versions of, of the Led Zeppelin back catalogue <laughs> and it keeps getting redone and they, there's a 24-bit and then a 24-bit remaster and then a flat transfer vinyl copy. And then and it happens and you go, why? It doesn't matter. This is such marginal incremental benefit to anybody. But Nostalgia is where the big money is in music. So when I realized as an artist that I don't occupy that space, I'm never going to accrue that kind of social capital, to put it in Bourdieu's terms, um, that, that that's not a thing that, that is significant to me or my audience. So what I want to do is I want to invite people into a journey that's going forward where they get a bunch of music that is entertaining and and perhaps soothing, perhaps there's a story to it, but where... They actually experience it as an episodic process, that each album that comes out is a new episode in this journey. And I think that the language around that has changed, that Netflix and the kind of the way that streaming TV and I guess Hulu and HBO have done the same thing in the States, um, has changed our understanding of the value of volume creativity in that way. And uh, that it's, it's not just about like a radio show that feels ephemeral, that we can actually have things that are episodic and, and evolving that are of a, a, a equivalent aesthetic value to standalone works like films or whatever. So I, so I can do this process where I, we can talk about it as being 10 albums a year, but it's 10 
independently packaged sections of music, almost all of which are live because my the technology allows me to record all of my gigs and record them because my my studio is the same as my live rig. So I just kind of you know it depends where it's set up, what I'm recording, but that's what's happening. I record all of these live albums and, and 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 then if I like it I can mix and master it but I can also tell the story of it mm. and that for me is another key element because I never felt like music music's value was never independent of the story that that it used to be when when you and I were lads yeah uh, that we would buy music magazines yeah. and I would and I graduated through from buying smash hits and number one in my early teens to buying heavy metal magazines for a few years I bought Kerrang and Metal Hammer and then the grown-up ones, Enemy, Melody Maker, Sounds, and then Q and Uncut and so on. And those stories impacted so heavily on how I viewed the music yeah. I was listening to. And I, what I wanted was a space where I could tell that. And so the subscription wasn't just about the access to the music. It was about that space where we could talk about it, that we created what a friend of mine who's an author in the States refers to as the space of the talkaboutable, <laughs> which is a lovely phrase. It's, lovely. Like, it's a beautiful the space of the talkaboutable and that for me is what the subscriber area is and it's fun again one of the lovely things about doing it at my level is that there's very little social capital to be gained for an audience member by talking to me in a kind of in a sort of shout out kind of way that if you look at the the instagram feed of someone who's monstrously successful their comments are full of people who just are commenting for the sake of of feeling like commenting is significant in and of itself and that doesn't exist with my audience, that I, I'm not cursed with people posting banalities because they want to feel like they have a connection with me. What I get is a bunch of very intelligent, very well thought out commentary on my own work from people who care about it. And that's an extraordinary luxury. That's an amazing thing to have. And it's one that I don't see replicated in many places. It's one that I've, that I feel fortunate to have it, but it's what I've worked towards. So it's not, I don't feel lucky in that sense because I've curated that space and I've, and I've done it intentionally and I've resisted attempts from other people to, to try and position me kind of in a more lofty space where I would get that kind of uh, banal nonsense from people who are just like, who want the association with me. And so they chime into a conversation they don't really belong in. But the, the, the private nature of that, of that, of that, subscriber space the exclusiveness of it means that people just come in and chat and sometimes i'll post things in there and they just get completely ignored that the subscribers nobody is like oh i better respond because steve posted something people go no no this isn't this doesn't appeal to me and so they don't talk and that in and of itself is really useful that's a that's actually quite a gift from people to not not clog up you know my time and theirs with with conversations that don't matter so if i'm listening to this and maybe I'm a musician or maybe I'm a different kind of creative. And I'm thinking, wow, this sounds amazing because I get money, I get support, I get freedom, I get real, genuine, direct, authentic connection and feedback from my audience. 
you know, that that sounds good. Is how <laughs> widely applicable is this model, Steve? I mean, do you could it work for other kind of musicians or other kind of creatives? And if so, um, what do you see as being the key elements that you have to have in place for this to be a success? Okay, there are a number of things that are utterly key. One of the which is you have to have the ability to hold your nerve and retrain your audience. If you suddenly launch a new platform or launch on a new platform, your immediate experience will be one of total indifference from your audience. <laughs> Nobody is waiting to go to a new platform to see you do things there. When I moved to, to, to Bandcamp, I didn't suddenly have hundreds of people going, I must buy it here. What I did pick up was a bunch of people for whom Bandcamp was already a significant thing. that They wanted to be on Bandcamp. That's cool. They liked buying things there. And that certainly has cachet now. So choosing a platform where people already are familiar with it is really useful. So Patreon now for a lot of writers is quite a key mm -hmm. platform. And so when you launch there, there will be a number of people who are already familiar with that. But platform switching is a really, really hard thing to, uh, to, to, to do with any existing audience. And so you need to spend your time making a case for why they should be there, why you should be, why you want to be there and why you think it's better for them. So that conversation, you need to be in conversation with your audience. That's not a marketing journey. It's one where you treat them like a community of people who are supporting what you do. And you say, this is a space where we all get to do this better. You get more work, you get a closer relationship with the work. And I get to do it without that perilous sense that unless I land an article in the New Yorker, I'm going to starve yeah. this month. You know, there is. So I think that, that, that making the case, and I, for, for me, the key uh, language shift is the shift from success in volume terms to success in terms of sustainability. Right. And it's, can I keep doing this? How can you be a part of me being able to keep doing this? Nobody's getting rich out of this. You know, this, this subscription model isn't going to suddenly, I'm not going to, I don't want to retire on it because it's, it has built into it yeah. The, the need for new work, that it's not, that if I was just said, there is an option on my website to buy my entire back catalogue for a single click. You can get it and you get it 70% off the list price on it all for whatever that means. And hardly anyone ever does that because I've explicitly and repeatedly expressed my sense that, that the forward journey is the one that matters. And your audience will listen to you when you tell them things like that. So if you spend your entire life talking about old work, about your old work and other people's old work, and then you say, and now you need to join me on this journey while I write new work, they're going to go, why? Yeah. You've spent 10 years telling us that old stuff is what matters. I see this with musicians all the time. So I see musicians whose Facebook feed and Twitter feed is full of them going, oh, you know, no one's made any great records like Stevie Wonder or David Bowie or whoever since 1980. Everything's gone, went rubbish at a certain point. Uh, file sharing has destroyed music. There's no good music happening. And then when they put out a new record, which they invariably do, everyone ignores it and they get really upset. And you go, <laughs> but you've trained everybody to believe that. You've, you've spent hours and hours and hours of your time crafting the words to explain to people why what you're doing now is meaningless. I think that's a lovely illustration of what you said about the, the way the story that you tell affects the perception of the music. Completely. Yeah, yeah. I, the, I, the vitality of it. I mean, my, last, my latest album is yeah. called The Arctic is Burning. And it's because as I was recording it, that I'm reading news about the fact that the Arctic is literally on fire. Now, it's, it's such a ridiculous uh, um, image, the idea of the tundra being a light and that, that satellite image from space. 
And I got the sense, because I'm an improviser, so I don't write music in the, in the sense that I sit down and kind of construct before I play a thing. I never have an idea in my head of what it's going to sound like. I make judgments about music retrospectively, either in the moment. So as I'm playing, I'm going, what's the best thing I can do right now? But when I, I listen back and I, and, I, and I treat it as a whole, I don't edit. Everything that I put out is a single live take because I want that narrative sense. Um, but that sense of writing music for now, about now, in order to foster a sense of togetherness about where we are in the world and who we are as, as a species. And that's what I want to do. That's a massively lofty, ridiculous aim. And if I was trying to do that on a global scale, I would need to attach myself to someone else's wagon. I would need for this to be part of a movement, part of a, I would need to, to start to represent it at a level it doesn't really deserve to sit at. Like, I don't think anything does. I don't think, I think... I think we're we're hopefully heading out of a time when art is seen as part of that kind of global messaging and actually becomes, we go back to a more sort of bardic tradition where people soundtrack their community. And I definitely see what I'm doing as part of that. That's my, there's, there's, there's an aim within that that is about me trying to, to tell those local stories and, and about now. And, and I don't, I don't want to be listening to music from 30 years ago and relying on that to help me to understand where the world is at now. Because because all of that music that we're nostalgic about, the, the meaning that we attach to it is what it meant to us when it came out. So, Steve, you know, for a long time, I've wanted someone to come on the show and tell a positive story about the music business, because we all know the stories of disaster and disruption and, the, you know, the sky is falling for musicians. And, I, you know, I'd like to thank you for coming in and showing us an alternative way of looking at it and an approach that's working for you and could work for other musicians and maybe other kinds of creative too. So on that note, Steve, I think it's time for you to set the listener your creative challenge. So if you're listening to the show and you're new to it, then this is the point of the interview where I ask my guest to set you, the listener, a challenge that will stretch you creatively and as a person. And it's related to the theme of the interview, and it's something that you can get started on within seven days of listening to this conversation. So, Steve, what's your creative challenge? So, my challenge is about is 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 very much about where, where we where we ended that, that the conversation about sustainability, and it's about reframing your notion of success. It's a thought experiment uh, that requires you to reframe your notion of success around the longevity of your creative practice. If your number one priority was to keep doing what you do, keep your your practice going for 20 years, so not even thinking about it in the sense of paying your bills for 20 years, this isn't about the commercial viability of it in those terms, it's about the work itself. What would you do differently if that was your number one priority? If 20 years of, of meaningful creative practice was your number one priority what would you do differently and then start thinking about that because because as i mentioned earlier on i'm now coming up to the 20th anniversary of my first solo gig when i did that i had no sense that i would be doing this for, for two decades let alone be at this point where i'm looking forward to the next couple of decades you know i i've, I've and i and, and i've let go of of the idea that i should be globally renowned or on TV or hmm. or any of that kind of stuff. None of those measures matter now. What I found is a space where I get to make the work that matters to me and make it in a volume that is that that is meaningful to me and my subscribers. And that there are a small group of people that sustainably 
support that work and have given me 20 years of it. So how, what is the lesson in that for you? What does it look like for you to do your practice aiming to keep that practice going for 20 years? Brilliant. Thank you, Steve. That's giving us all a lot of food for thought, I think, for some time to come. So, Steve, where should people go to find you and your music and uh, maybe to join your community online? Uh, okay, so the, 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 my website is stevelawson.net and that has links to everything. If you want to skip the wordy bit and jump straight to the music, then the Bandcamp URL is music.stevelawson.net. Um, and that that forwards straight through to Bandcamp. So there, you and and you can listen to about thirty six hours of continuous music for free on there. And you know, it's not you don't need to subscribe. It's not thirty second previews. You can go and listen to all of it because I'm not interested in selling music to people who don't love it. Like I want people to be able to fall in love with it and then go, great. How do I support this? Rather than being hoodwinked into buying a thing, um, you know, by giving them a sneak preview. That does that that doesn't make sense to me. So SteveLawson.net. Uh, music.stevelawson.net is where the music is and on pretty much every social platform I am solo bass Steve all one word three s's in the middle solo bass Steve great thank you Steve and obviously all those links will be in the show notes as usual Um, as usual Steve it's been mind bobbling mind bobbling (laughs) boggling maybe that as well Uh, and a a pleasure (laughs) to be in your company so thank you so much for sharing your your hard-earned wisdom with the 21st century creatives today Uh, thank you for giving me the space to talk I really appreciate it You have been listening to the 21st Century Creative, hosted by Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show, as well as all the backlist episodes of the podcast, at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like my help applying the ideas in the show to your own situation, you're welcome to join us in the 21st Century Creative Patreon group at patreon.com slash the 21st Century Creative. And if you are an experienced creative and you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. And I'll be in touch with you as soon as I've reviewed your answers. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.